Today's scripture is from Luke 19, verses 11 through 27. The parable of the ten minus. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive from himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You took what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Uh, Yes, you know, comforting, warm, fuzzy parables of Jesus for Advent, brought to you by Jesus and Liberty Church. We read this kind of stuff at Christmas. I know, it's a little weird. Um, good to see everybody this morning. You know, have you, ever tried, have you ever tried to make yourself respond to something in the right way? You know, to say, you know, for example, you're like, cultured people like symphonies. You know, intelligent people like operas. I should like this. You know, and you, you anticipate this, you, you try to go in and you say, I'm going to really, really like this. This time, I'm going to really like this. And if you've ever tried that, you know that it's nearly impossible to will yourself into responding the correct way. You know, it's, it's almost impossible to sort of like make yourself respond the right way to something. And, you know, the funny thing about this is that this is the way that many people come to the Bible. They come to the Bible and, and we sort of know how we're supposed to be toward the Bible. We're supposed, to, we're, we're supposed to have pious thoughts. You know, we're supposed to be deeply reflective and nod and, you know, yes, we all get this. And, and, you know, but the problem is if you come to the Bible, particularly to a passage like this, and you're like, this is how I'm supposed to react. I want to react the right way. You end up short-circuiting the power of what's in the scripture. So... Look, instead, allow it to catch you off guard. This is what you have to do with the scripture. Uh, allow it to penetrate it, get past your defenses. Um, 
I recently bought a CD of sacral, sacred choral music. This is highly out of character for me. It has no banjos in it anywhere. And here, here's the backstory to this, okay? So I'm, I'm, I've discovered that classical music calms toddlers. So I'm driving my kids to school and I turn on the classical station because everybody's like quiet and reflective in the car. You know, it's a great, I'm like drinking the coffee, driving the kids, everything's good in the world. And as, you know, I'm kind of just driving stuck in center city traffic, I find myself absolutely transfixed by this music. This sacred choral piece that somehow I'm just stunned by. And I... I, you know, I, I actually called the station to find out what the what the song was and where I could get that particular album, and I went and bought that particular album. Now, that's way out of character. There's no bluegrass in that. But there was something about that music that I, I wasn't trying to make myself respond to it the right way, and yet somehow it gets in, and it, it and it, it really penetrates. And this is. So look, you know, if you, were, if you were listening to this passage this morning, and as Kelsey read for us this passage from Luke 19, and you were bothered by it, you were disturbed by it, then praise God, you're awake this morning, you're here, something's real going on, that like, you allowed it to kind of get in. But if you sat there and you were like, hmm, yes, hmm, yeah, then I've got to tell you, you've got to wake up. You know, if you had thoughts like this, wait a second, wait a second, you know, I feel bad for the guy who received the mina, and then, you know, the nobleman comes and says, ah, we're taking that away from you. You know, you're like, I know what the recession's been like. You know, people have lost their shirt. You know, if, if that bothered you, then you're here. You know, um... What about this taking from the poor and giving to the rich? That that can't be right. Or here's the big one. Jesus, you know, t- the nobleman says, "Bring my enemies and slaughter them in front of me." Hello, are you here? You should be disturbed by this parable. You should be if if you're here and you're a little bit like, "I don't know if I like this." then congratulations. Hold on to that thought. There is something real going on in your life this morning. And I'm glad you're here. So let's look at this story. This is a hard parable. This is not the Christmas parable that we want to hear. This is a hard story. And we're going to look at the the four main characters in this parable. So the, the nobleman who becomes a king. We're going to look at... Then we're going to look at the enemies of the king. Then the servants. And then finally the lazy servant. Is listed there at the end. So let's look at these in order. The king. Jesus takes this story right out of the current events section of the paper. This is where this parable is kind of built around what would have been to them a common news item. In 4 BC, Herod died. King Herod. And this is right around the time of Christ's birth. And King Herod had been put in place in power in Judea by the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. And he's, he's allowed to, to reign and rule there under the oversight of Augustus. Rome had a, a really wise way of leading. 
of ruling its huge empire, which was saying, we're going to contextualize in every place, we're going to be flexible in every city we rule by allowing there to be variations on the theme, how we reign. And so King Herod was really not a king. He was kind of a figurehead, but he was allowed to have that name. In 4 BC, when he dies, his son Archelaus is like, inherits his rule, and he also gets to rule under the authority of Rome. Now, at this time, you know, like, Archelaus wants to also be called king. But that's not a common practice. That was actually an exception to the rule. And so Archelaus gets a whole bunch of his followers, a whole bunch of his friends and family members, and sends, takes them on a huge tour to Rome to appeal to Caesar and say, let me also be called king. Now, as he does so, Archelaus was a bad guy. He had lots of enemies. And he, also, he has a contingent of people who opposed him who also went to Rome. And so, in front of the, the emperor, in front of Caesar, there, an argument breaks out of who is going, what should we call Archelaus? Nobody's to, you know, contesting his, the fact that he has a right to rule. But they're saying, should this guy really be called a king? And Archelaus went home disappointed. He was not allowed to be called a king. So Jesus takes this story and tells a parable, does it sound familiar, about a nobleman who wants to be called a king. And so he goes off to petition to allow to be called a king. And see, doesn't this story... It should sound like something. We're in the season of Christmas, and I promise to try to use a lot of Christmas stories in this in this sermon today to make you feel a little bit more comfortable. But, you know, um, doesn't this ring true a little bit? There's a, a person from noble lineage who descends from a royal house who makes a long trip to get credentials to become be called a king. He got what he went for, and yet there's a petition from some of the opposing citizens who say, we don't want this man to reign over us. Jesus takes this story that's from the current event section of the newspaper about Archelaus and tells a story about himself. This is a story about me. I'm a king. I am a king. And there are those who oppose my rule. There are enemies. And there are servants. Jesus is telling a story about himself. He is the king. So, let's look at these other, two, these other two groups of people, the enemies. You know, the parable tells us that King Jesus has enemies. And the news is, of course, that's us. In our natural condition, we are people who oppose and dread and hate God. We are his enemies. We fight against him. You know, we would say, just like the delegation of citizens in the parable... We don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want this man to rule over us. Now, some of you may say, like, you know, that's kind of strong language. Aren't you being a little bit rough on people? Hate God? Dread God? Hate God as king? Surely, you know, come on. Aren't you being a little bit, isn't this hyperbole to make a point? And I would say no. See, because... There are lots of, of um, people who would say, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I am trying to discover who God is. I'm trying to like get to God, know God. There are lots of spiritualities and people who are spiritual people. And yet, if you push them, if you dig down deeply, people would say, yes, I want a God who offers some inner peace. 
But I don't want a God who's going to contradict me. I want a God who's going to bring me a sense of like calm. I feel together. I have a God who approves of me. But do I want a God who calls me to sacrifice? See, we want a God we can worship Sunday, but who's not going to bother us on Monday? That's our natural condition. We're people who are enemies of God. We hate God naturally. And so the context of this parable tells us, though, something else. Even though we are enemies of God, God wants us. Even though we hate God, God wants us. So you have to read this in the context. Do you know what happens after Jesus tells this parable? As soon as he's finished telling the story, he starts making a journey. And he goes from Jericho down to Jerusalem. And the next day is Palm Sunday. And Jesus comes into the city where people are declaring him king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here comes the king. Five times in Luke, after this, we see Jesus call the king. First, he's greeted as a king at Palm Sunday. And four other times, he's derided. We don't want this man to to be king over us. See, this is a picture. The context tells us. Look, we're enemies of God. God wants us. God is one who comes after the enemy combatants and says, lay down your arms. And he comes and provides his own son. Jesus comes to lay down his life so that the enemy combatants can be brought near. This is what the cross is about. This is why in our church, during Christmas time, we sing songs about a, a cross as well as a cradle. Because Jesus came, his death was that of bringing us, bringing enemy combatants to myself, to himself. So, let's, let's, let's a little, really like stop playing around. What's the most disturbing verse in this whole story we read? What's the most disturbing thing we read this morning? Verse 27, right? What? Jesus says, bring these enemies and kill them in front of me? This can't be Jesus. This isn't the Jesus we want. You know, we want... We won't really want God to be like Santa, who really doesn't bring switches and ashes to anybody. I mean, like, do you know anybody who's gotten switches and ashes? I don't. You know, surely God is like Santa, and he brings all good gifts to all the kids. Kill these people in front of me? See, isn't this parable incredibly instructive for us? See, when we read verse 27, we're like, this is incredibly unfair. Isn't God mean? How capricious. You know, if I don't prefer Jesus, I'm dead? If I don't say, yeah, you know, Jesus is for me, then I'm I'm out? What harshness. See, the problem is, when we hear this, we think this issue is akin to choosing college or choosing what kind of donuts you're going to order at, at Krispy Kreme or Dunkin' Donuts. We're like, you know... Wait, just because I want to go to Temple instead of Penn State? Just because I want jelly donuts instead of chocolate glazed? God has a problem with this? Just because I don't prefer Jesus? God says, come and kill my enemies in front of me? How mean. But think about this. 
See, read the story. It's not about God preferring, uh, God condemning people just because they happen to prefer Jesus to some other option out there. Rather, do you see the judgment on his enemies here is God's rightful judgment on those who are enemy combatants. Not people who don't just choose right, but people who have arms, who are, who are regularly fighting against him, who are shooting at him. Those who refuse, see, the condemnation here is for those who refuse to say, you're right, I surrender, I lay down my arms. It's not for those who happen to not just kind of prefer jelly donuts over chocolate. Do you see, you know, the only sin that will not be forgiven, the only sin that will not be forgiven is the sin of not being willing to lay down your arms and embrace Jesus as your king. Do you remember John Walker Lind? Does that that name ring a bell? It's been a number of years since you've heard that name. He was, quote, the American Taliban. Boy raised in the Midwest and and was discovered, was captured as an enemy combatant in 2001 as America invaded Afghanistan. He's now serving a 20-year sentence in prison. And whatever you think, and I'm not here to, to talk politics this morning, but whatever you think of Guantanamo Bay, whatever you think of our involvement in Afghanistan, whatever you think of American foreign policy, I want you to hear this. We are all John Walker Lind. We're all fighting on the wrong side. In our natural condition, we are people who are enemies of God. And God in His grace has made a way for enemies to be brought in. But we're not students applying for early decision. We're enemy combatants. Now, why am I pushing this with you this morning? Why am I kind of laying it on thick? It's because this, just being in a church no more makes you a Christian, than being in a parking lot makes you a Volkswagen. Right? You can be here. In fact, many of you have been here for many, many weeks, months, years. I don't want to call you. We should be unsettled. There's something about us that should say, is this legitimate in my life? How do I recognize the fullness of the fact that I have been fighting against God? Have I really laid down my arms? You know, if you're, if you're struggling with this view of God, of judge, then you have to say, the problem with that is not God, it's right here. That I'm unwilling to see the fullness with which I've rebelled and raised my finger of hatred against Him. And I am John Walker Lind. You are John Walker Lind. The King... The enemies. Now let's talk about the servants, because actually most of this parable is directed to talking about the servants of, of the nobleman. You know, this is this is the stuff for us. This is the home team, God's people, right? This is the stuff about God's people. Um, so in Jesus's parable, the nobleman gives his servants each the same amount of money, a mina, and and you know. This is not a familiar term to us. A mina is, is about a third of a year's, is about a three months salary, a fourth of the year's salary. So if you make $60,000, this is about $15,000 he hands to his noblemen, to his servants. And a lot of times people confuse this parable with one that's told in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, 
uh, Jesus tells a very similar story, and it's a story about talents. And, it, and Jesus tells a story about giving his giving servants, a noble and giving servants, different amounts. So to one he gives ten, to another he gives five, to another he gives one. And talent, that, that parable is, though it's very similar, it's a different point. Because in that parable, talent, as you already know, is... It symbolizes special abilities. In fact, talent was a unit of money in that day, but has come into our language now so that talent is it's such, a, it's such a dominant force culturally that in English, talent now means special ability. And in that parable, the, the point of it is, you know, how are you investing your special abilities? How are you specialing the talents, right, that God has given you? But that's not what this parable is about. They're two different stories. In this one, every person is given the same amount. Every one of the servants is given, ten servants, all given the exact same amount. Now think with me. What is it? What precious commodity have you and you and you and you and you all been given in the same amount? What one thing has God said, I want you to invest this but he's given it to us all equally. It's not our abilities. No matter what everybody says, not everybody can be anything they want to be. We're not all equally talented. That's okay. But what has God given us all the same amount of? The gospel. The gospel. What, what is this valuable commodity that God calls us to invest? It's the gospel. I know gospel is not a word that we use a lot, that maybe it's not a regular word in your vocabulary. Gospel is the message of God that says two things. You're an enemy combatant. You've taken up your arms against a king, yet God loves you and wants you and has laid down the life of his own son to bring you near. That's what the gospel is. And see, the point of this parable is like, look, you've been given this. Each one of us has been handed this. And the question, how are you investing it? How are you investing the gospel? How are you taking this commodity that all of us have been given an equal amount? How are you using that? How are you investing it? See, the gospel is our mina. When Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, he tells them, he says, we have been entrusted with the gospel. We've been given it. It's, it's ours to invest, to use, to steward. How are you investing it? Let me give you two contexts to think about this in. First is the context of your own life. How are you investing the gospel in your own life? See, the gospel is not just a story to know. It's a power to unleash. It's an explosive power. This gospel is not just a story to know. You have to think about this or you won't get this point of the, par- the whole story. The gospel is not just a story of what Jesus did in history. It's a power that's unleashed in a person's life. So I know that some of you grew up in places, let me see hands, where hunting season was a day off school, the beginning of hunting season. Some of you grow... Okay, right. So I'm going to try to like, give you, throw a bone to you guys, some of you hunting season people. So um, I know that in some parts of the world, um, some strange places, hunting season is celebrated as a holiday, the first day. And 
Imagine, you know, for, in, in a lot of places, it's bigger than Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's kind of the yawn event. But hunting season, that's the real event. This is when men go out and bond together. You know, this is where we go and kill meat and bring it back, you know, very much in touch with our roots. And um, so, you know, imagine. You're going to have to use this, your imagination if some of you are not from this area. But imagine if the first day of hunting season, okay, your grandfather, your uncle, your dad, somebody comes and presents you with the family treasure. It's a hunting rifle. This is yours. Now you have two choices with what you do with this hunting rifle. Right? You can take the hunting rifle, and you could put it up on a rack above your fireplace. And you could even get some little lights around the hunting rifle. You can polish that thing. You can dust it regularly. You can have people over and they come admire the hunting rifle. It's the family heirloom. Or you can go hunting. You can take the gun out and sit out and be way too cold and wet and chase animals around and hunt with it. And see, those are what we do with the gospel. For a lot of people, don't we do this? Hey, isn't this great? Jesus died for my sins. Quick, turn on the lights. Polish the rifle. Let's all admire it. But see, the, the gospel is not something that we... It's not an heirloom that we treasure. It's a power to be unleashed. This thing needs to be loaded and then unloaded in your life. You know, there should be... There's an explosive power to how the gospel is supposed to be unleashed in your life and my life. So you have to ask this question. Are things being blown up? What about your finances? I'm preaching this morning. Yes. What about your finances? Is the gospel exploding on some level? You know, what about your own personal motivation to move toward God? Is there explosion? Are you admiring? What about in your relationships? Is stuff being blown up? You know, patterns, we can't just keep playing the same old game in the family. God's doing stuff in my life. I have to apply the gospel in this area. I have to forgive this person. I have to stop bearing a grudge. I need to speak up. Where is the gospel exploding? You know, your ears should be ringing on some level. You should feel a kick in the shoulder. If there's not things going off, if there are not some explosions happening in your life, you have to ask, what am I doing with this? With the, God's given me this mina. Have I just put it up on the wall to look at? Do I just polish it every once in a while? Glad that's there. Nice family heirloom. See, other, the other area, the other context for this is your relationships. You know, do you see what this parable tells us? Every one of you is a broker. <laughs> Every one of you is an investment. Investing. You know, what are you doing with the gospel treasure you've been given? What are you doing with this mina in your relationships? You know, one of the challenges for us is, is showing and telling. You know, show and tell is what they do in preschool. And yet we're in a culture that's all about showing but not about telling. And so it's one thing if you're like, yes, Bradford, the gospel. 
waffles exploding in my life. That's great. And other people look at you and they're like, my, what a great woman. My, what a great guy. If that's all that's happening, you're just showing. And you're actually a distraction for people to see Jesus. Because they look at your life and they say, there's a man who doesn't need anything. Self-made guy. What a great guy. What a great woman. See, the gospel calls us to show and tell. If we don't tell people, you know what? The only reason why I'm like this, the only reason I'm changing is because Jesus. And I know, listen, I know that's hard. But if we don't tell people that, we're actually false advertising for Jesus. Because people look in our lives and they say, they don't say, my, what an amazing Savior. What an awesome God. They say, what an awesome person. The gospel is always show and tell. It's always show and tell. It can't be one without the other. See, you know, if you have to scratch your head and say, why does God do this? Would you ever in, to give your investment portfolio and give it to a teenager? No. And yet God says, here, I'm entrusting you with the mina. I'm entrusting you with the gospel. What are you going to do with it? You know, see, in this parable, think about this. This is an unpopular king. This is a very unpopular king. And the king goes away and has, actually, some people write petitions and say, we don't want this man to be our king. And do you see what the nobleman's doing? He's saying, look, I want to see, servants, how you act in a world where I'm apparently absent and there's hostility. You know, these servants, in order to invest, they have to really think about it. They're like, nobody likes this guy, and I'm, I've, I've chosen the horse. I've, I've placed my bet. Maybe this is the wrong horse, but I'm with him. They're going to encounter opposition. And Jesus is telling this parable, it's like saying, look, in a world where I am apparently absent, I want to see what you're going to do with the gospel I want to see what you're going to do with the gospel in a world where other people are going to give opposition to you, where it's going to be unpopular, where it's not going to be something that people stand up and give you applause for and say, yeah, what a great job you're doing. This is why Jesus tells this parable. It's hard. You know, Jesus tells this parable, and it's it's clear that like once the nobleman comes back, It'll be easy to be connected with him. Other people will say, you bet on the right horse. But what happens between now and then? What about you? You know, our our king has gone away. And he will return. You know, we don't want to think about this, but guys, we serve an unpopular king. There's sort of a movement right now in Christianity to try to make, you know, hipster Christianity. Let's try to make Jesus hip. Let's, let's try to make this thing market. This could use a Jesus could use a little shining up, a little PR. And every time his disciples tried to do this, Jesus was like, "No way." He would he would turn up the heat. He would say, I'm, "Now I'm going to tell a more offensive thing." Right? Because what we're talking about here is not something that's easy. And anyone who's telling you being a Christian that's not going to cost you anything, it's going to be an easy ride. They're selling you something. Because what Jesus lays out for us here 
is something that's very hard. You're serving an unpopular king. You're aligning yourself with an unpopular king, and the choices you make, other people are not going to understand, and they're going to think you're nuts. They're going to think you're nuts. The king, the enemies, the servants. And then the wicked servant. You know, what is... When the master goes away and he comes back, do you notice what he says to his servants? He doesn't say, well done, you are successful. I'm looking for success. I'm really looking for people who can, have, who can make it happen. No, Jesus says, the nobleman says, well done, you were faithful. You were faithful. You know... See, the thing that he says to the, the lazy servant is, you, were, you didn't do. You were lazy. You were you, non-participation. You know, and it's clear here, non-participation in the gospel is the same thing as being an enemy. It's that stark. You know, it's interesting... Um, you know, more space in this passage is given to this description of the lazy servant than it is to anybody else. And so we need to think about this. You know, think about what is the difference? What is the, the big difference between the two other servants who are highlighted, that one who produced ten more and the one who produced five, versus this one who's lazy? What, what, what's the difference? Yeah, you know, two were faithful, one's not. But Changed. What was the difference in... It's not... Look, look what the nobleman says. He doesn't say, look what you did. He doesn't point to what they did. He points to how they think. How they think. You know, what they do is significant only in showing how they think about the master. You know, Jesus puts this in here to jolt us awake. Look at verse 26. It's the most annoying verse in this passage. You know... What is the conversation really about? It's about how they see the master. You know, when any author, but particularly in scripture, repeats something, you've got to listen. And what's repeated here is the, the, the servant says, this is what kind of a guy I thought you were. I thought you, you, you reaped what you didn't sow. I thought you were a hard man. I thought you, you were pretty exacting. And so the master, Jesus says, okay, I'm going to judge you according to your own definition of me. If you thought, I reap what I didn't sow, I'm a hard man and I'm exacting, then why the heck did you not do anything with this? Why is there nothing fruitful coming out of your life? Why didn't you at least put it in the bank? Why didn't you do something with it? He judges him according to his own standard. But this is what's troubling to me in this passage. And again, I hope you're unsettled this morning. He doesn't correct the man's picture of the master. He doesn't correct the, the, the man's picture of who God is. Look, you know, he doesn't say, look, I'm not like that. He doesn't say, here's the rest of the story. He says, yeah, this is partly true. You have part of the story. But if that's all you have of God, like this lazy servant, if that's all you know of God's character, then you are also like the lazy servant. 
you're missing what it means to be a servant. You know, the hard part about this passage, when I read this at first, and may, I hope you're awake enough to hear this this morning, they're like, when I started reading read this, I'm like, wait a second, where's grace in the story? You know, we're a church that talks about grace. We talk about how God accepts us. We talk about how God embraces us. Where's the grace in here? And I really struggled with this. And I hope you're struggling a little bit with this this morning. Where's the grace in this passage? But I, I would tell you, looking a little bit closer, it's all grace. It's all grace in this passage. This is what he's saying. It's impossible. It's impossible to serve this master out of fear of punishment. It's impossible to serve the master out of fear of punishment. See, Jesus is saying, look, the kind of return that I want on my gospel investment is one that you can't get. It's impossible from a motive of fear. This is why you notice that this servant, he doesn't get demoted. He gets exposed for not even being a real servant at all. You can only have this kind of spiritual results from investing your your resources in serving what you know to be the giver of joy. Think about how this works in life. Okay, This works on several levels in life. If you're worried about your performance, you will fail every time. Okay, This is true in sports. I remember trying to play golf. Golf is the worst sport ever invented. Because if you are focused on how you're doing, okay, I, I've noticed this. If you are more and more focused and get more and more upset on how badly you're doing, you're going to do worse and worse and worse and worse. This is true in friendship. This is true in friendship. If you're worried about how you're performing as a friend, did I return the call? Have I, you know, how did I really follow up? What did that person think of me? What did they, how are they thinking, interpreting what I just said? What kind of a friend are you going to be? You're self-consumed. This is true in love relationships between people. You know, you read the old fairy tales, and the Prince Charming doesn't say, what do you want now? He says, "My wish is, your wish is my command. I am here for you. Right? A focus on performance. How am I doing? I'm anxious about how I'm doing. How am I measuring up? Am I really in? It's not going to work. It doesn't achieve the, the results. It's, see, look, if you're behaving right, if you're behaving right this week to stay on the right side of God, you'll never see this kind of freedom in your life. You'll never see this kind of overabundance pouring out of your life. You know, if you're worried, if you're worried about your own security, you know, if you're worried about, if you're petrified at making decisions, you will do this. You will circumscribe parts of your life and say, God, I'm going to give you this and I'm going to perform well in this area, but don't ask anything else of me. Look, I, I can make this happen for you. I can nail it all down. I can check off all the boxes and I'll, I'll dance for you. But you're really not connected to the heart of the master. You really don't know him. See, the passage begs the question, in your life, do you have a real life-giving relationship with God? Or is it all dress-up? Is it formal, but not real? Every year, my family, we drive um, outside the city, and we like to go cut down a, a Christmas tree together. And it's a big, big event. We all look forward to it. We all take the saw. We get in touch with our, like, 
you know, mountain roots or whatever. And, you know, we drive out and, and we go cut down the tree and we bring it back to our house. And I love the tree. You know, you bring the tree into the house, the whole house smells great. And, and the tree looks great. You know, it's beautiful. And then we decorate it. We put all the homemade ornaments, the stuff from the kids' art classes, you know, all the stuff on the tree. And we turn off the lights. We put on Elvis Christmas music. We drink hot chocolate. We're all, like, into this. But give it a couple of weeks. Give it a couple of weeks. And as much as we like that tree, you know, we know that it's all the sparkle is the stuff we've put on it. It's not alive. It's dressed up. But I don't want that thing in my house for forever. It's trash within a couple of weeks. Because it's not alive. Christians love to make much of Christmas trees in churches. You know, people who are sparkle, people who seem to have it all together. People who seem to have their life kind of, it's glowing, everything looks good, we can all turn down the lights, oh, you know. And unfortunately in churches, that's a lot of times who is celebrated. But Jesus' parable is, look, is there anything beyond the sparkle? Is there anything living underneath? Is there anything being produced out of your life? You know, this parable tells us, look, you know, for those, for those who are guarded, who are playing it safe, there, there's nothing. You know, it's, it's all sparkle and tinsel. You know, this parable is troubling. It should cause us to ask some really hard questions. But it's a great parable for Advent. It's about the coming of a king. You know, Advent, as David read for us at the beginning of the service, means coming. And Christians look back through history and we say, Christmas, Jesus' birth into the world, that's my hope. That's how I know an enemy combatant has been brought into his people. But Christians also, Advent is also used to describe a future coming. When a king who right now is apparently absent, his rule will be made visible to all. And his coming, we see, is a grace event for those whose lives are producing something. Where there's more than just Christmas tree living. There's risky, bold living. Do you see what the story ends up with? It's kind of strange. Do you see how what how you view the master is an all or nothing event? Is he just a hard boss? I mean, that's true. God is holy. You don't trifle with God. That's not, that, that's actually true. God is a hard God. And yet that's not the whole portrait. And if you're living life with half a portrait, then you'll live in fear of this God. But if you see the fullness of what's given to us in Christ, that he's holy and yet his love draws you in, sucks you in, allows you to discover explosive power in your life, gives you freedom to live in such a way that you're open-handed with not only your stuff but the gospel, then you look forward. You say, there's a coming in which this king, whose rule has been, he's, he's, there's lots of opposition, things are unclear, it's ambiguous, it's hard, but there's coming a day when what is hidden will be brought to light. 
And there will be great joy. Do you see how ridiculous the returns are that Jesus promises in this passage? This is something we don't like to think about very much. We don't often think about very much. But there's, there's a ridiculous response from the master toward those whose lives are productive with the gospel. Look what he says to the one who produces ten more. He says, you're going to rule ten cities. What? <laughs> I invested your gospel and I get ten cities? I mean, we don't even... That's, we don't have a category for that. The one who is productive with five. You get five more cities. So a picture here of God's bounty for his children. You know, the coming, as we look at Advent, the coming of Jesus in this world tells us enemy combatants brought near. But it's also something that's meant to raise our gaze off of what's around us, the hardness of living life in opposition and say there is a future glory there is something that god is taking us to where god says you know everything every small act that's done every act of faithfulness done in my name will be remembered and will be rewarded and it will be unbelievably worth it in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen